liberated. That was that was great. I wish I knew that we were starting that way. That's I how would have started. added on to that. That's All right, guys. This is how you know we don't rehearse it. If any of you thought we rehearsed this, it's off the. Cup. Why? Why do you think that? <laughs> yeah. So, Welcome everybody. Welcome to Not at the Dinner Table, N-A-T-D-T. everyone's favorite podcast about politics and religion. Everyone's two least favorite dinner topics. Until now. Until now. And we're talking about a topic today that is both very political and very and religious. Deeply religious, yeah. Perhaps and, the and most political and most religious episode Yeah, well, and I think, ever. like, uh, building off of what we've talked about in the last couple weeks, maybe diving... Uh, how, do, how do you connect that to politics a little bit? Yes. Keeping it religious still. Um, there's a little bit of history mixed in. Yeah, this is great. It'll be a fun episode. History, religion, politics, and what's, liberation. What's not to love about that? We should get, like... I don't know. This isn't a very visual medium, but if we had some like cars like swerving, doing like donut, like something really cool like that. I just watched John Wick. Full disclosure, so oh there's a gosh. lot of really cool stuff. <laughs> anyway, welcome. Will not back, be guys. the movie corner, <laughs> but yeah. Welcome to fake fake. News. Welcome back, everybody. Very special segment of uh, everyone's favorite uh, in in podcast podcast special moment we've got to come up with a better name for this kind of thing uh yeah so this is real fake news uh this is our fun little segment special easter post april fool's edition yeah special april fool's edition um where typically i i give seth a list of news stories from the last couple weeks um some of them are real some of them are fake and i i try and see if he can discern if if uh like most americans if he is going to be fooled by the fake news Whoa. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, topical you're, you're right uh but this year uh or this episode i thought we'd mix it up a little bit do something different for april fools this year which just came and went yeah um which started off Holy Week. Started off Holy... What's a better way to start off Holy Week than lying to all of your friends and family oh about something gosh. important? Never do pregnancy jokes, guys. They're, they're horrible. Okay. They suck. Um, so I, I grabbed a couple uh, April Fool's jokes from, from this year mostly and one or two from previous years um, just to see uh, which ones kind of vibe with Seth, with which ones he... Um. Which ones you, you feel like are good, I'm right? I'm blind reacting. There's, I don't know what these there's are. There's some pretty tacky ones, but there's some that I'm like, oh, okay, that's kind of, you know, that's fun. That's interesting. All right, why not? Mm. Um, so we're going to start off strong here. You know, <laughs> I feel like everyone is getting into the fashion game these days, um, you know, especially with like Kanye pulling out for many reasons. Uh, you've got to you've got to have someone to fill that void. Someone's got to someone's got to fill that Yeezy void. The gap in so, Yeezy void. So who's better to fill that void? Then none other than uh, a global super food chain, uh, McDonald's. Mickey um, D's. McDonald's revealed uh, that it's announced uh, and launched the latest must-have item of the season uh, called the Big McNugget Boot. Um, and it oh, is a shoe. No. It's because it there's all these It is the most boots. flavorsome oh. shoe of the year. No. That's what it is. And it's releasing exclusively through the McDonald's app on Monday. So oh, that's gosh. that's the exciting. And I there's probably a picture attached to it of just a very, very fake McDonald's Terrible shoe. Boot. So there, there's the first one. That's been a trend, though. There's been all these like uh, new kind of boots that just look terrible that people are wearing to fashion shows. So... That is a very pointed and timely uh, satire article because the boot trend right now is just atrocious. And as a Floridian, I don't even like to wear shoes that cover my ankles. Like I, you know, I didn't own a pair of shoes that cover my ankles until I moved to Indiana a few years ago. So, you know, I'm not in with the boots. Give me some Vans. 
some oh, so if, so if it was McDonald's vans, you would have been more on board. Oh, yeah, I'd be like. definitely on, okay. I'd be on board. I mean, I'm not trying to wear Big Mac vans, but at the same time. Sure, 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 sure. All right, hit me with the next Okay, one. so this one, uh, this one's from a while ago. This is actually a quite pretty old one. This is from 1996. <laughs> what? Uh, I, this one is so great, though. Um, in 1996, Taco Bell ran full-page advertisements in the New York Times, USA Today, and the Philadelphia Inquirer, saying that they have purchased the Liberty Bell, and it is now renamed the Taco Liberty Bell. Oh, I've heard and about And they this did one. this to reduce the national debt, right? So people, people were really upset by this. Like, <laughs> Congress, congressmen thought it was real. So they, they would, like, call the National Park Service just to make sure it wasn't real. Um, so after they admitted it was a hoax, they donated, like, $50,000 um, to preserving the bell. Uh, oh, but, my gosh. But it was... That's good. I mean, good, good on one. Taco Bell. That's a good you know? one. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and really as a political commentary, you know, <laughs> you know, like corporatization of American that's history. That's right. That's right. It made yeah. us it made us pause and think. That's right. You know? That's why I picked that one. That's why I picked yeah. that one. Yeah. And also they both are fast food related. So is this next one going to be about Burger King or Uh no, it is it is still food related though. We're okay, moving out of the realm of fast food now though. Um you know, uh, did you ever have those like little cheese rounds growing up the like baby bell cheeses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I okay. mean, we didn't I had them at friends house. We did we Sure, but like that. you know you know of them, <laughs> yes, right? They're familiar. Yes. They're within the zeitgeist of I had one recently, yeah. Oh, okay. Recent <laughs> Okay. When I was in South Africa, oh, they had okay. them there too. Okay, why not? Why not? Oh, we're out. Just just slide South Africa into this conversation. I mean, it's 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 what happened. Uh so this from this year, um, Baby Bell, the company that makes those, announced yeah, yeah, yeah. that they are um, going with a more serious, more adult redesign of their Baby Bell uh, cheeses. Uh, so they, they're wanting it to be taken more seriously. Uh, so they said, quote, after it came to light that the brand is deemed too fun, the decision <laughs> has been made to change to a new, more mature shape. So they are now making square baby bell cheeses instead what? of round ones. What? How is that? When it more comes mature? to cheeses, we're not messing around and we think it's time to cater for a more serious audience. We're right. making the biggest change to baby bell in our history to become square and excited for even bigger changes this year. Oh so my gosh. there's there's a fun one that for you. That was fake though, right? Yeah, oh, uh, these okay. are all these are Okay, these are all <laughs> I just have to make so, sure. Okay, I don't want no square <laughs> Cheese is square everywhere else. Like the, here's another the here's another good one from this year. Um, the the company the Wave that makes the like artificial wave pools. Okay. You know, right. Okay. Um, so the CEO of that company, Nick Hounsfeld, um, posted a photoshopped photo online um, showing uh, dolphins within a wave pool. Oh, uh, happy to announce that he's. Uh, releasing rehabilitation pools for dolphins, wave rehabilitation pools for dolphins. Bruh. So that's wait, a, that was that's a, a joke. One. Yes, that, that was a joke. That feels cruel, though. And that like, one does feel a little that's like cruel, right? Making your making your company more philanthropic yeah. than it actually is. Yes. For like dolphins, which are like a protected species, right? Yeah. Bro, come on. Yeah. That's yeah. typical CEO yeah. behavior. Right. Bro. I know. I probably break. did not think of it at all. Yeah. Um, did you hear of the what? There was one a couple of years ago. Volkswagen. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, Vol- Volkswagen? How do you oh, say it? Oh, gosh. Don't be pretentious. It's Volks- <laughs> Volkswagen. Volkswagen, the German car company, right? A couple of years ago, they announced that they were, quote-unquote, officially changing their name to Volkswagen. Um, I kind of gave that away electric earlier. So instead of Volks, Volks. yep, Volkswagen, right. uh, to Not cater right. to the more electric car audience. Um, I think the ironic part of this is that they were in, like, a lot of hot air, like, uh, uh, 
what do you call that? They were, they were in a lot of trouble yeah. recently because they were like lying about their emission standards. Oh. Um, so it was like, ha ha ha, we care about the environment, but also we are actively lying about Joking how much we're about. ruining the environment. Yep. So that's a good one. Wow, both of those were sad. They're like, both the very dolphins, sad. like pretending to care about the environment and not, <laughs> and then pretending to care about dolphins and not. That one kind of sucks. Yeah, Bro, I'm these, sorry. Someone sorry. needs to put these corporations in check, except Taco Bell. They can do whatever. They want. <laughs> um, I've got one more for you all here. Right, last all right, one. This I'm is ready. the last one. This is the last one. Um, we all know and we all deeply love uh, former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, right? Known, Debatable. Known for being just the, the most, like, paragon of virtue character of his era, right? Well, his when PR no, team would no like you concerns. to believe that. Um, so the, the Royal Albert Hall, the, like, iconic yeah, building in That's the UK... Very important um, concert venue. ...announced, this is from this year, uh, that, that they uh, had new documents that came out that showed... Uh, Churchill wanted, and this is, we're getting a little NSFW here. Um, oh. Churchill wanted to use, uh, the, the fake story that Hitler, um, only had one testicle as propaganda in World War II. He wanted to like write a little song about it that he wanted to like sing over the radio just to like mess with everybody. Oh um, so they, gosh. they released these fake like letters, um, that he was writing to, uh, the the executive of the Royal Albert Hall at the time, right, saying like, "Hey, I want to write a song about Hitler and the fact that he's missing uh, one of his body parts, um, and everyone's gonna really love it." Um, oh my god! So they like they wrote up this letter, uh, and this was an April. This is an this April, is an April Fool's. Fool's. Joke yep, year. yep. Why would you yep. get that complex? Yeah. So the Royal the Royal Al- Albert Music Hall, yes, is claiming that. <laughs> Winston Churchill had written songs that are just now being released about Hitler, the one nut wonder. Yes. Yes. That is you, you hit it. You hit the nail on the head there. Oh yeah. my gosh. I think those just got, it started light and it just spiraled it just, into darkness. I, well, I think people think that like, maybe they feel obligated. Maybe these companies feel obligated to do for April fool's jokes, but like if you don't have like a really funny one, just don't, do just anything. don't do it. Like it's not, it's not, it's not worth it. Like they're so dumb. Uh, our our local soccer team here, their prank this year uh, was that they were going to replace the names and numbers of the players on the shirts with QR codes. Oh, and they're gonna be like, you could scan it to find out all the information. I'm like, okay, well, obviously that's fake. Yeah. And also, like, come on, come on, it's give not us, even funny. Yeah, give us a little more effort. Here, Do right? better. Put a little work into that. That yeah, so. was the fakest. That was the fakest one of all time. Yeah. Oh, Tune in next time. We're gonna talk. Uh, more about Seth's opinions on, on Hitler's testicles. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs>
Super excited to talk about this. Get yeah. us started, Patrick. What is let's start talking about liberation sure, theology? Yeah. So, some history in there. Let's do one hundred percent. Yeah. Well, you mentioned right that like I, I think a lot of like uh, especially us like white Westerners from mm-hmm. Europe, from North America, it's become more of like a trending topic to talk about this. To either like mm-hmm. say, oh, we need more of this, or we need to critique this. It's quote unquote woke or whatever. But but I think what gets lost in a lot of that is that this is not. I mean, compared to like all of church history, it might be a new tradition, but it is not a new tradition. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it is several generations removed from from the original creation of this this uh, political theory, mm-hmm. this religious theory as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it's helpful for us to keep in context that um, this is one of the probably most widespread and most well known um, ideas of Christian thought mm-hmm. that was uniformly developed and and spread and popularized by non-white Christians in the global south, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the Southern Hemisphere, exclusively started in Latin America. We'll talk about how it spread to, to more places than that, mm-hmm. um, but, but started by uh, uh, mostly Catholic clergy and Catholic uh, Christians within mm-hmm. uh, Latin American countries trying to reconcile a lot of the, the social problems that were going on at the time, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's where it came from, right? So when we talk about a lot of theologians, like we talk about really great people like Bonhoeffer, for example. Mm-hmm. For example, or or uh, or Nowen, or or right. There's there's a lot of big names you can throw around. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's someone who's either from Europe or maybe from North America, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's just kind of you know, we, it's a very Westernized um, perspective, racist bias right? of the yeah. Well, one hundred percent, right? Um, but but not this one, right? Like like yeah. there there's definitely a lot that comes from. Uh, it being spread to, to quote unquote like developed countries, um, mm-hmm. but it didn't start there, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we we work through this. Is this was built from the ground up, very intentionally so. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, just for a bit more context, um, as this theory was being created and developed in Latin America, especially in the like late 1950s, early 1960s, um, it was a very different world, right? It was very different for. Catholics um, and what you believed and what you were allowed to believe. And it was very different if you lived in South America or Latin America, right? Um, At this time in South America, um, we were seeing a rise of right-wing autocratic governments Mm -hmm. who were overthrowing a lot of democratically elected, more centralist, more populist, or maybe even more left-wing governments. Um, And often we saw this not just with the support of agencies like the CIA, but also with the explicit support of the Catholic Church organizations in those countries, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest biggest example of that is um, in 1964, there was a a military coup in Brazil, right? The, The Brazilian military violently overthrew uh, the the democratically elected government in Brazil, and they established a right-wing military junta, right? The junta, um, it's just a Spanish standard for maybe like a dictatorship, a military mm-hmm. dictatorship, right? Um, and they did that, not with the resistance of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church wasn't like, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. No, they were like, no, 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 we like this. We really support this. Because at the time, the Catholic Church were huge landowners, right? And they had been for centuries, ever since the Spanish and the Portuguese had conveniently found this this land and moved in there. Um, the Spanish uh, and, and Portuguese Catholic churches were fully supportive of all of this, right? So as these countries became independent, um, the Catholic churches were the ones who held power, right? This was, uh, this was institutionalized beyond institutionalization, right? Like this was, uh, right, if you could get in the Catholic church hierarchy, you were set, right? Like, like this, this was the, the, the concept of power, went hand in hand with 
the government, right? So, so when they saw these right-wing military folks come in and say, hey, we're going to preserve your, your authority, your power, we're going to listen to what you say as long as you also support us. Tell the people at your churches, support us. Mm-hmm. They were all on board with that. Right. So that that I think is an important thing to keep in mind. Right. Is that this is a Catholic church before if you if you have studied church history, this is before the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. Um, This is with the Catholic Church, um, both implicitly and often explicitly supporting some very anti-human rights uh, governments. Right. Mm -hmm. Especially in Latin America. So that's that's where this is starting. Right. Mm uh, right in the throes of all of that movement, right? So there's there's a couple things that that kind of prompted this, right? There's there's an organization called uh, the Latin American Bishops Conference. Um, the the acronym is C E L A M C E or CELAM, mm-hmm. um, which uh, is the Spanish acronym. Um, but this was first formed, I think, in the mid '50s, maybe 19 like 55, 56, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were um, concerned uh, bishops and other uh, members of the Catholic Church throughout Latin America who were seeing um, just the horrible like social impact of of deep uh, uh, so like economic injustice in in their countries, right? They were seeing uh, just an explosion of um, people who could not afford to like even have homes, um, uh, a massive amount of poverty, um, coinciding with a church that was just entirely uninterested in helping, mm-hmm. right? And church, sometimes actively against yeah, act, the act, poor and oppressed who were yeah, being harmed, actively by supporting yeah. the policies that were making them. Uh, uh, that, that, that were in- increasing the amount of people in poverty mm-hmm. because it gave them land, right? It allowed mm-hmm. them to preserve their power again, right? So these were people within the church who saw that, who saw what was happening among the cardinals, among the leaders in the church, and were like, hey, this is a problem, yeah. right? We need to do something about this. And what do we do? We're going to turn to one another, and we're going to turn to the Bible, mm-hmm. and we're going to consult what it means to be followers of, Christian, uh, of Jesus, Christians, in a deeply unjust society, mm-hmm. right? So that's kind of where this all came from, right? Is, is, is they met, they tried to form all of this out. Um, they wrote a couple documents um, that uh, uh, were talking about uh, the importance of uh, social justice, mm-hmm. right? That's kind of when this phrase started to get popularized mm-hmm. um, by Christians, mm-hmm. really fascinatingly. Um, and, and ideas of economic equality. Um, a, a number of them were influenced by um, explicitly socialist uh, movements and organizations, but a lot of them were not as yeah. well. It was it was a mixing of all of these ideas. Yeah, and it also I think as a point here, a yeah. lot of times when people bring up liberation theology, you know, people love the adjective Marxist, and they say, oh, you know, these uh, uh, Catholic thinkers in the '60s and '70s in Latin America, mm-hmm. they were just Marxist and they were trying to apply Marxism to the gospel. I think you're doing a good job of making like it's not that simple. No, and while they were informed by. Um, the way Marx talked about class, they weren't, you know, they weren't just people trying to make Marx and Jesus cooperate and building something out of that. They were applying the scriptures and their faith to their context and using the tools of society and the tools of class struggle that Marx had already articulated. Absolutely. And I think that's important to place it in its context because, um, yeah, people love to just throw that adjective as a way to like disqualify something as Marxist or whatever, or 
and like there were Marxist influences, but this was not sure. just a Marxist ideology hidden within Christianity. It was a Christian theology that was mm-hmm. contextual and was historically located, but also made grander claims and truths about the nature of the gospel, about the nature of Christianity, and and what the priorities of Christianity should be and ought to be, and how to live them out. Yeah. And yes, Marxism was one of those tools, but it wasn't like the only thing. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And and I and I think that it's important to remember as you're looking at this that that at the end of the day, this is a theology, right? Mm-hmm. These these are these are all written by people of a Christian faith. Um, who are who are seeing the same problems that someone like Marx would have seen? Who would yep. say like, yes, the way our social structure is built is inherently unjust. It's mm-hmm. inherently unfair. And they they would even go so far as to talk about social sins. That's kind of what they would say: mm-hmm. yep. is that it's not just uh, individuals committing bad things that are sins, but it is us as societies choosing to do these things that are communal sins. Mm-hmm. Um, but their response is not necessarily let's lead a violent. Uh, overthrow or let's let's demand a forced redistribution. But their response is, we are the church, mm-hmm. right? And if we are the church, if we are called to to care for these people, then we really need to care for these people. We need to advocate for these people. We need to push for those people, right? Um, so this this kind of like all coincided. This all built up. There was a big meeting of that that council of of Latin American bishops, Selim, um, in Medellin, Colombia, in 1968, mm-hmm. and that was the meeting where they kind of like decided, all right, we've got to we've got to push together, like we. We've got to move this together. Um, we saw this really happen in Chile in the 70s, where the church was very vocally opposed to Pinochet's realm uh, uh, reign. Um, uh, so yeah, this this is all breaking out. And what did this look like, right? What did this look like on the ground? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a key part of this idea of liberation theology was this idea that Christians, and especially Catholics in positions of power, mm-hmm. um, need to be in... Uh, uh, active praxis, right? So they use this word praxis a lot, which I think comes from a Greek word. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not super familiar with the origin, but what it basically means is like taking the skills you have, taking the under, like the, the education you have, taking the authority you have, all of that, right? All of these things that you've built up and you actually have to like physically use those for things, Mm -hmm. right? So like praxis could be something as simple as, um, a, a, uh, a carpenter building a table, right? Uh, who is taking the skills that he has learned and that act of building the table is praxis. But for them, uh, that would also be priests literally going out amongst the poor and literally giving food, mm-hmm. not just preaching about the, the parable of Jesus feeding the 5,000, mm-hmm. but actively going out, actively feeding, actively putting their lives on the line to help people targeted by violence, mm-hmm. right? Actively speaking for people who are unjust, um, giving up the pulpit, so that other people could use that as a place to speak, mm-hmm. right? And doing things that were explicitly political, right? People, uh, 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 many priests were advocating for increased voting rights. Mm-hmm. Um, they would go out and they would advocate for land reform. They would go and get arrested in in nonviolent, illegal protests mm-hmm. because they were out after curfew or they were in a place that the government wasn't allowing them to be, right? So they were they were realizing, no, 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 no. Our, our belief, our faith... Mm-hmm. Um, is is just that it's just a personal understanding unless we in, enact what what is this praxis right we have to physically do it right so that's that's what a lot of this came from um, mm-hmm. and there are a number of really big people within this who who kind of like built this idea there's there's um, I think uh, I can talk about the yeah first yeah yeah do you want to jump into this yeah so Oscar Romero is yes, a name yeah. that is attached and in many ways he is both 
um, the sort of initial inspiration for a lot of Latin American liberation theology. Yeah. And also he was, in many ways, the first martyr. Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually there's a school named after him. And so he was the Archbishop of the Catholic Church in um, El Salvador. Yeah. And he was in the capital city. Um, and he was you know, ordained in 1942. And he just started doing the work of being a priest in a poor community, in an urban poor community. Mm-hmm. As uh, El Salvador, you know, was being um, really ripped apart by this violent, you know, right-wing regime. Yeah. And uh, he was made a bishop in 1970. And um, so I'm going to read, this is actually from the uh, school, uh, it's the story of the school named after Oscar Romero, but Mm -hmm. just read Mm -hmm. a little bit. So it says, violence increased in El Salvador by the mid-1970s as a government and army began killing poor people who stood up for their rights. So just like you said, when poor people were standing up for voting rights, they were being gunned down by the government. Yeah. And when an army killed three people in the village of Tres Cales in Romero's diocese, he comforted the families and wrote to the president to protest about the murders. So he started by writing a letter to the president and, and saying, hey, this is not okay. These are people in his congregation, in his care, that are dying at the hand of the government. Um, and, you know, he, uh, whenever he was made archbishop, people thought, oh, he'll finally stop with this whole campaign of speaking for poor people and advocating mm-hmm. for that God mm-hmm. is on the side of poor people. And they thought, oh, this is good. But as soon as he got that position, he just used that platform, you know, to further advocate. Yep. And he had a, a close friend who was killed um, by the government. And um, he had one mass the following week in the whole diocese, and he spoke out against the murders. He used that as a platform, as mm. this tragedy to bring the community together and to really uh, share his manifesto of that this violence has to stop and that the poor are the ones who are, who are uh, receiving all of the hurt um, and so as, but as the violence, it only ramped up in El Salvador, he continued to speak out and every Sunday he, his sermons were broadcast by radio and the whole country became captivated with his, uh, his message and his life was threatened over and over again. Yeah. Uh, the radio station yeah. was bombed and, um, eventually, you know, he made a, he, he declared and, and told the, the, uh, El Salvadorian army to stop killing people. And he's quoted as saying in the name of God, in the name of the suffering people mm. whose cries rise to heaven more loudly each day, I beg you, I implore you, I order you in the name of God, stop the repression. Mm. And the next day he was murdered. Um, while he was while saying he mass was, as while well. he was uh, presiding over yeah, mass. Yeah, in public. And yeah. a UN report later found that um, it was a member of the military that killed him, yeah. um, went, came into the sanctuary and ordered uh, his death. So then his funeral happened, and the army attacked his funeral. They fired in the crown, and 30 people died at this man's funeral. Um, and the civil war in El Salvador continued for decades after that. And so this civil war, I mean, he was someone who yeah. you know stood out and spoke against this. And so he was, he was a martyr who, um, you know, is one of those early symbols and his work, his voice, mm-hmm. the way it was syndicated and spread out. I mean, it inspired other countries across Latin America for other folks, people like Gustavo Gutierrez yeah. and many other voices. Yeah. So he, he was 100%. Sort of the, the, the initial... He, well, and I yeah. think, like, he's still... He would remain probably, like, the most well-known figure within the liberation theology movement, yeah. right? Like, he, yeah. he was the one who, like, he literally gave his life to do what this whole theology was yes. talking about, right? And there was yeah. a debate within the Catholic Church for decades of the people of El Salvador who were close to him asked that he be sainted, but the Catholic Church refused to condone most of his actions because yeah. they were on the side of the they oppressor. Were at that time, yeah, 100%. And yeah. so it wasn't until 2018 that finally, when Pope Francis uh, became Pope, that uh, finally um, 
Romero was canonized as a saint. Wow. Uh, but that took decades, like you're, like literally 40 years. Yeah. Uh, for him to be rec- for his work to be recognized on the level with so many other of these white theologians who yeah, did right. far less, far with less. Their lives. did a lot of writing, but not and a lot of faced like, less yeah. violence fa- and, and and yeah, had far less of an impact who were, you know, uh, became saints for different reasons. Sure. So anyways, yeah. just one of those yeah. important stories. Um yeah, no, uh, really I mean Romero is is if, if you're going to like research any one person, um, that would be the person to lis- listen to. Cause he like, I mean, really the like r- actual physical embodiment of liberation theology, really yes. incredible person. And probably um, the second most significant person would be Gutierrez. Gutierrez. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, that's who I want to just talk about for a second. So, mm-hmm. so, um, this other person, Gustavo Gutierrez, he was a priest from Peru. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, around the same time period as Romero, but a different location, um, also dealing though with a very unjust government with a lot of repression and a lot of support within the Catholic church, mm-hmm. right? Um, this was a, a man who had grown up in poverty. Um, he was, uh, deeply sick as a child, bedridden. His, his family couldn't really afford for him to care at all. Um, he, he would attribute his recovery to like a lot of, um, uh, uh, it, I mean, he, he would probably see it as like miraculous, right? Mm-hmm. Um, very deeply Catholic person. He, d- he devoted himself to the Catholic church, mm-hmm. um, very early in his life. Um, uh, he was a teacher at a, at a Catholic university in Peru for a while as well. So like very well educated person, but also had a very deep experience of what it means to be poor. Mm-hmm. Right. And this was the guy who kind of like wrote out the, the intellectual like theory of liberation theology. He wrote yes. a book, um, and in the seventies called the theology of liberation, yeah. right? Which and he that's said the foundational text. Yeah. That, that is the text, right? He says that it's not so much like a new, um, uh, theme for understanding God or, or Christianity or the world. Um, but it's a new way to live that it's a new way to do theology again. So like it's, it's a physical doing, right? So what is that? What does that actually mean? Right? So what, what does he mean when he's talking about liberation? Mm-hmm. So for Gutierrez liberation, um, was three very distinct dimensions um, that were all inseparable from one another. So all of these things had to happen for true liberation. So the first, the first one is political liberation, right? Which he would argue is the transformation of social structures, right? And and that in itself feels very daunting, feels nigh impossible, right? But that's just the first one. <laughs> uh, the second liberation, the second liberation is is an internal, it's a psychological liberation mm-hmm. um, or a physiological uh, uh, liberation rather. So it's a, transfer, uh, it's a transformation um, in which a person who is poor, a poor person comes to affirm his or her own agency, mm-hmm. right? It's, it comes to see your own self-worth, right? That is almost as daunting a task as something like an entire socials change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the second liberation that is involved for him. The third liberation um, is explicitly Christian, right? And again, we go back to like, this This is a Christian movement. Oh, it is very yeah. political, but it is also very, it is very Christian. It's, it's liberation from sin, mm-hmm. right? Um, so he sees that as uh, uh, liberation connected to salvation itself. Mm-hmm. Right, so liberation from sin is is affected. It's it's impacted through the crucified and the risen Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, for him, it's all coming back to that. Yeah. Um, and he would always say he would he would talk about this a lot. How um, all three of those liberations are distinct; they're their own thing, but they have to be intrinsically connected. They have to be happening at the same time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but he does also say, you know, salvation at the end of the day, salvation is a gift from God, mm-hmm. right? We can work to enact the first two acts of liberation, mm-hmm. you know, the self-worth of the, of the individual, no matter how poor they are, mm-hmm. and the changing of social structures. All of that maybe includes the work of the Holy Spirit. But for that third thing, that liberation from sin, that cannot be done without God. We cannot mm-hmm. truly be liberated without a loving and a caring and an emotional God. And, and this is maybe yeah. where it ties back a little bit to this, this relational theology. We talked about this mm-hmm. open theology. Um, and that people like Gutierrez would say, yes, of course God hurts when we hurt, mm-hmm. right? Of course God cares when we care. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's this phrase that he would say a lot, um, uh, which has kind of become a big phrase, uh, talking about how God has a preferential option for the poor. Yep. Right, and, and, and he would say that a lot. And, and what he meant by that was not that God cares more for some people than others. No, he would say, of course, God cares as, as much as God can possibly care for any individual person, right? Um, but to say, and, and, and that means that God's love is universal, right? God loves universally. But to say God loves universally cannot mean that God's love is neutral, Right. Because if you say that God's love is neutral and you look at the, the entire history of human interaction, of human society, mm-hmm. is, is what, what, what you see as, as the history of human society is what liberation theologians and other people would say, no, that is the history of systematic oppression of, of many, many millions and billions of people by the individuals in power. Right. That is what human history is. Human history is the history of oppression. Right. And, and if we say that God's love is neutral, um, then that cannot mean that God is good (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because God must be on the side of the oppressed, right? God must stand for those who don't have a chance to have anyone stand with them. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, I'm, I'm quoting from a book called uh, it's, it's a companion to political theology, Peter Scott, Mm -hmm. William Kavanaugh. It's, it's a great resource. Yeah. Um, I would just add a quote in here from, yeah, go for it. He says he defines liberation theology as uh, he wrote this in 1988. It's theological reflection based on the gospel and the experiences of men and women committed to the process of liberation in this oppressed and exploited subcontinent of Latin America. Mm-hmm. It is a theological reflection born of shared experience in the effort to abolish the present unjust situation and to build a different society, freer and more human. Yeah. And so I think one of those key things that you're touching on of liberation theology is that it views um, the liberation of the oppressed person as intrinsically uh that is holy that is the yeah. story of salvation salvation yeah. is as much a spiritual sort of otherworldly thing yeah and actually it, it's even more so a very much here and now thing yeah that is uh that salvation in the story of christianity the story of christ is meant to liberate people in their here and now situations yeah and especially yeah. people that are oppressed and when you look at uh, the Christian scriptures, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that it's clear in the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian New Testament that God does have a preferential option for the poor. There's over 2,000 2, verses in the uh, Christian scriptures, mm-hmm. the Protestant canon. The Protestant canon alone, yeah. over 2,000 verses related to the poor and the oppressed. So when people say, that's why I made that distinction about Marxism. When people say, oh, liberation theology is just this, you know, kind of offshoot thing that's not real theology, or when they they criticize it, these people are basing this theological reflection and this view in their context on scripture. And they made that, I mean, all of their writings make that very clear, right? Is that that they were very intentional about studying what they knew of the early church, right? And and, and what we had of Jesus's writings and uh, and, and the early apostles, right? Mm -hmm. And to say that this, this is what we're trying to enact, 
We're trying to enact that in a world that is that is even more unjust now, that is even more stratified now, and right, and, and we've got to be active about that, mm-hmm. right? That's what they were doing. And I think there's another dynamic as well of um, when if you situate Christian theology as God has a preferential option and is on the side of the poor and the mm-hmm. oppressed in every mm-hmm. situation and every time and space. The idea there is that as you advocate for the poor person, as Romero did, as Gutierrez did, as mm-hmm. many others did, that you are actually then, through your political actions, through your praxis, you are then calling the oppressive and ruling class to repentance. And so it is universal. Yeah, Because oh, 100%. by, by yeah. uh, preferring the poor and elevating the poor, you are actually calling the whole system to be more just and better. Just like... Jesus. Did. Yeah, I yeah. sorry, phenomenal Continue. quote here. Um so so again, yeah, what what he's saying is he's saying preferential option for the poor, not mm-hmm. exclusive. Mm-hmm. Right? He's not saying that God loves people the, the poor people exclusively in mm-hmm. our society, right? No, what 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 he's saying is is that we are called to love the poor first because only by loving the poor first can we truly love all people. Mm-hmm. Right? And he talks about this. He talks about how we are also called to love the oppressor, but he says that an authentic love for the oppressor must be born from the conviction that in a situation of oppression, both the oppressor and the victim are dehumanized, mm-hmm. right? Like you have to acknowledge that like the oppressor, these, these military juntas, these military governments mm-hmm. are just as dehumanized are, 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 as the people they are oppressing. Mm-hmm. Because right? the actions they are committing against the yeah. poor are dehumanizing. Yeah, but, uh, uh, and he's not suggesting that the poor in, in society are necessarily like better people than the mm-hmm. powerful, but uh, the option for the poor, that preferential option, is the choice to place ourselves in a social situation uh, to view things from, this, from the perspective of the people who are marginalized, mm-hmm. right? Not because they're better, not because they're more powerful, not because they're more moral, but the God in scripture is the God who is preferentially among the outcasts, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's why that is, is taking place, right? God chose uh, crucifixion next to two convicted, you know, thieves, mm-hmm. right? Like that's, that is who God is in that scripture. When God right? became a human being, God was condemned, was given the death penalty by the state. Yeah. So like he God would say that this, this is not, among this is not even a political option. This is, this is a deeply religious, this is a theological option, right? Yes. Because God opts for the poor. We have to as well. And in fact, if we don't believe that, right? If, if we believe that God refuses to take sides, again, then that would mean that God serves the minority, right? God mm-hmm. serves the status quo, the mm-hmm. preservation of power for the powerful. Um, and if God's love doesn't actively try and undo that status quo, then God's neutrality just, you know, legitimizes that injustice, right? So I'm thinking, uh, uh, even in our society, right, which um, is uh, overwhelmingly wealthier, overwhelmingly uh, 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 wider, right, mm-hmm. um, but, but often just as stratified in the way that we view power and wealth and privilege in our society, mm-hmm. right? If we are not saying we have to stand with the oppressed mm-hmm. in order to love both the oppressed and the oppressor, then what are we doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think about the Black Lives Matter movement, Right. Mm-hmm. And I'll, 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 I mean, I'll go into that. Right. Like, like, I think there's a misunderstanding when Christians are saying, well, but God, but God says all lives matter. God said everyone matters. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, of course. But if you are not standing with the ones who need it, right. Mm-hmm. If you're not standing with the marginalized, if you're not standing with the people who are being gunned down in the streets, mm-hmm. um, then you are saying that this status quo is okay. And you are saying that God believes that as well. And of course God can't believe that. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, that's, that is the core of liberation theology, mm-hmm. right? It is this idea that like you have to use everything you are 
to stand with the poor, um, uh, uh, poor in spirit, poor in wealth, poor in privilege, whatever you want to talk about, mm-hmm. um, because uh, because we have no other choice, right? That's that's what they come back to at the end of the day, right? This is what we have to do. We have no other choice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I would add um, that's Latin American liberation theology, yeah. and it's you know it sparked a whole host of other. Forms of liberation sure. theology, and well, I'll, I'll say real quick. I yeah. mean, and it, and it worked in in yes. many ways, right? Yes. Um, the the Catholic Church would change its position on a lot of things. There was mm-hmm. a Second Vatican Council um, that was very formational. It did a lot to change the Catholic Church. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's a reason why most masses are no longer in Latin, and that is the reason why. <laughs> um, but but also, it changed their perception of what they should be doing socially to care for people, right? And now it is a very common, even though some parts of that council are still controversial within the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very accepted within the church now that um, uh, care for the poor, care for the privileged, uh, the, the the underprivileged, um, mm-hmm. the eradication of poverty. That is a key moral issue of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And the current pope, Pope Francis, has made that like one of his defining things as yeah. well. And he's right? the first pope from Latin America. Yeah, and and it, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that he is the first Latin American pope, right? The yes. first pope outside of Europe in over a thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, Incredible, insane. Yeah, and I and I think like we should just take a moment to be like, how amazing is it that this part of the world that uh, the church was complicit from the very beginning of European existence there mm-hmm. in enslaving and slaughtering the native peoples. Mm-hmm. That very like institution was the one that turned it around to say no, no, no. We have to we have to put ourselves in their positions and we have to care for them mm-hmm. more than we care for even ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that is a change that I think is really powerful. Um, sorry, and I know you want to talk about like more yeah. more of what oh, it yeah. did globally as well, right? Yeah, yeah, but no, and that's I think that's uh, incredibly important that that yeah. perspective literally has changed Christianity and changed the world yeah. for the better. Um, and that's why I would be cautious or careful for people that immediately seek to sort of discredit. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are examples in Latin America where people who espouse um, liberation theology and different uh, folks, Catholic folks in the, in that context, mm-hmm. there were um, specific cases where they even took up arms against the government. Right? They did. Yeah. And there there were Catholic priests who, who fought the Colombian government, like yeah. violently, right? Yeah. Um, and that's a very extreme version. It's a very right? extreme version, and I think often when you talk about liberation theology, people jump to there. Well, that's just sure, that's just sure. priests, you know, taking up violence or whatever. When you know the hypocrisy of that statement is yeah, another thing yeah, we can unpack yeah. later. But um, another thing, so I think it's really interesting too. That's Latin American liberation theology, and it emerged through the Catholic Church. Yeah, right? it was yeah. not accepted, and it was actually repressed and persecuted by the Catholic Church, especially during the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. But it's something that was born. Uh, out of the Latin American Catholic Church from yeah. people like Gutierrez and Romero and many others mm-hmm. uh, who many of them died, you know, uh, in living out their preferential option for the poor. At the same time, within Protestantism mm-hmm. in the United States, you had a different form of liberation theology, which um, is, is called black liberation theology. And the yeah. father of black yeah. liberation theology is named James Cone. Mm-hmm. If, if you've not ever heard of James Cone, I highly recommend um, reading any of his books, learning as much as you can about him. I mean, truly a, um, just an incredible voice. And I think one of the most important American theologians in all of Christian history. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And, um, so during the sixties and seventies, as the civil rights movement was happening in the United States and as things were, um, you know, the Jim Crow era was being Mm -hmm. understood in the reconstruction era, like James Cone, um, started writing and started, uh, you know, providing the basis for the foundation for black liberation theology. 
And so he called a, a Theology of Liberation a rational study of the being of God in the world in light of the existential situation of an oppressed community relating the forces of liberation to the essence of the gospel, which is Jesus Christ. Um, and hmm. he, says, uh, he also says that one of the tasks of black theology is to analyze the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the light of oppressed blacks so that they will see the gospel as inseparable from their humiliated condition and bestowing on them the necessary power to break the chains of oppression. And so James Cone's book, uh, one of his major books is called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. Yeah. And um, he draws a very clear parallel and an important uh, distinction between the way, as, he's, as that quote sort of says, that in the humiliated condition of the um, black person in America, mm-hmm. that that is where Jesus identifies most, right? Because, like, historically, what do we know and understand about Jesus? Jesus was a brown-skinned refugee who <laughs> walked on the soil of Africa, who was from the bad part of town. Yep. People immediately uh, made assumptions about him based on where he was from, and he was condemned to death. He was given the death penalty by the state and hung on a tree. <laughs> so James Cone just lynched. naturally yeah. looks at how the American... Uh, how American black people have been persecuted for generations for well over 400 years in this country and draws a very clear parallel between the cross of Christ and the lynching tree, uh, Mm. the symbol of persecution for the black American um, that still haunts and oppresses this country today. And so James Cone sort of is taking the similar ideas of Latin American liberation theology and totally innovating and creating in a new way to say, uh, if God's preferential options for the poor and if salvation is to be located within the work of liberation in the here and now mm-hmm. what does that mean for a similarly oppressed group here in the united states and he's sort of uh and so it's interesting that you have these two incredible world-changing theologies emerging yeah. christianity one from protestantism uh from a mi- minority voice in, in protestantism, in protestantism yeah. and then another from a minority voice in catholicism yeah. these two groups that split 500 years before um, are are now sort of building a bridge and and and, and coming informing coming to like the same the conclusions about the problems that they see in society, yes. right? Like that's incredible. Yeah. 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 Well, and I'll, and like I mean, it it wasn't just you know the Americas where this grew, right? This mm-hmm. this grew. This has grown all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's become a key part of um, uh, the idea of Palestinian liberation. So there there's a whole mm-hmm. movement called the Palestinian Liberation Theology movement, um, uh, and these are these are um, Palestinian Christians mostly, mm-hmm. um, who predate, uh, I mean, there's, there's Christian tradition in that area that predate, um, not just the modern Israeli state, but even like the Muslims in the Middle East. Right. So this is like a deeply historic tradition. Um, and their argument that like, it is impossible to reconcile this political conflict without personal and even religious reconciliation, right? And the recognition of the oppressed, right? That's important. People like Elias Shakur um, have advocated for that for a very long time. Um, there's there's uh, a theology that came out of this in South Korea um, mm. that actually, um, it's called Ming Jung theology, um, which is, again, advocacy for the oppressed from, from Christian leaders, from Catholics. Mm. Um, it's fascinating because there was a Catholic artist um, named uh, Kim Chi Ha, who, who kind of like started all of this off by drawing very graphic images of a Korean Jesus like dying and suffering amongst the poor, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of what started this movement, 
right? So it's it's not just Latin America. It's not just uh, black liberation theology. It's also uh, the Middle East. It's also South Korea. It's also, I mean, we could talk about South Africa, right? It's like this, this is everywhere. This is a global movement. Um, but, but in it being a global movement, it's, it's a very individualized global movement, right? It's, it's tailored to deal with the specific problems, the specific social issues of each place. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and I, I think that's something that, that, uh, this, that, that it's able to encapsulate that a lot of these other movements don't, right? Mm -hmm. Like this idea of socialism um, from a political perspective or even communism mm -hmm. hinges on a global movement of workers, right? Mm -hmm. Who realize that they're all, they're all more united than they are separate and they're all going to come together. Mm -hmm. um, but this says, no, 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 like we are different people, mm -hmm. but we have the same problems. And across, across ideologies, across language, across ethnicity, um, the church is still there, and the church should still be doing that work um, mm -hmm. in its own localized area, right? That's, I think that's, a, that's an important thing to note here, yeah. Yeah, and I think um, connecting even a little bit of last week's yeah. episode about process theology, I mentioned, you know, one of these sort of thoughts within process theology is the idea that God, because God does not know the future, but knows all of the possible futures, yeah. that God is sort of possibility itself, right? That mm. when we, God is almost a verb, that when we partake in God, we are, um, you know, uh, stepping into the possibility of what could be, and we are cooperating mm. with God in non-coercive ways to bring about the best possible future and working towards that. And, and within possibility, I love this term, um, you know, salvation and Christianity being thought of as liberative possibility. So the mm. possibility of liberation for the most oppressed person, yeah. that that is sort of what the work of salvation, you look at the work that Jesus did, the people, the, the majority of people that Jesus was healing and spending time with were the poor, were the oppressed. The people that were coming to him were people who the healthcare system or lack thereof had failed. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. And the economic system had utterly failed. Uh huh. And even people who were in the religious structure, yeah. yeah, who were ethnically cast to the side, they were yeah. the ones that Jesus, you know, interacted with. Um, and when he interacted with the powers that be, often he was still interacting with them. He was still loving them. With he was still loving them, but he was challenging them, was and calling them to them account, and calling them yeah. to account. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so just the idea that when God shows up the possibility is liberation. And the yeah. liberative possibility of existence is sort of what makes uh, the Christianity here and now. So mm. liberation theology is beautiful in that it's situated in particular historical moments and contexts, as every theology is, for the record. Sure, yeah. I'm going to pause there for a second 100%. to let that sink in. Every form of theology is situated in a particular time and space. And I, I'm, mm. I'm making this distinction because often when people talk about liberation theology, they talk about as if there is... Capital T theology, which usually means like white German people that came up with stuff, right? Yeah, we yeah. talk about that as if it's all of theology and liberation theology as if it's this sort of subset to the side, but it's not, right? Liberation theology is as much capital T theology as any other form. True. Um, and so to, to not dismiss it because it's contextual, but actually to celebrate it and to recognize the possibility that if Oscar Romero in his time and space could connect the teachings in the life of Jesus and the tradition of Christianity mm -hmm. through the Catholic system, which was super corrupt, super messed up. Yeah. He contextualized it in a way that changed uh, his country, his community, and eventually changed the world. James Cone reflected on the situation of the black American, connected it with the life, the teachings, and the history of Jesus and of Christianity, mm. and changed the world. I mean, most of like the 
even slightly progressive takes on BLM that a lot of like white Christians have sort of come to is literally just rehashing stuff that oh, James Cone wrote decades 100%, ago, right? Yeah, and it's like you are not, this is not new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, James I'm Cone, sorry. Yeah. most points that, uh-huh. you know, any major white pastor has sort of come yeah. to about, around racism in the last five years or even three years specifically is just rehashing something in a more light way that James Cone said decades ago, right? Hmm. So James, so the liberative possibility is that people like, James Cone and Oscar Romero and Gustavo Gutierrez and many others are contextualizing faith to their time and space. They're saying specific things about their context, but they're also claiming universal truths about the nature mm. of God, about the nature of humanity. Yeah. And that has changed the world, and it invites us to step into that liberative possibility and to ask the question, who is being currently written out of the story? And yeah. how is God preferring them, and how can I be a part of that? So you have to... Which means you have to do a little bit of, like, you have to have some class consciousness. Where are yeah, you in that? Yeah, and huh, where do you huh. recognize As Christians, we maybe that? have to acknowledge that. Like, Interesting. Rather yeah. than just push it to the side, right? Yep. And, I, and I, yep. I do think, wrapping up here, right, like, this, it's hard to do, right? It's very hard to do, especially when we live in a place where um, being a white Christian very much is the status quo, is, yeah, right? The majority and that's, that's the expectation, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you want to be in a position of power, either mm-hmm. politically or economically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to be able to take that and first to acknowledge that and to say like, yeah, that's real, first mm-hmm. of all, that's the first step. Um, but then also to say, what can I learn, right? What can I learn from people like Gutierrez, right? What can I learn from people like Cohn? Um, what can I learn from South Africa and the South African liberation movement, mm-hmm. right? Um, because uh, these people were not just writing it for the sole purpose of, of their own local problems. They were writing it because they, they saw it everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and their story and their context is as close socially and culturally to the story of Jesus. yeah as basically anyone in, in the modern day. And yeah. so their perspective on Jesus, and from my view, is actually going to be more reliable and more accurate hmm. because they are their social location is very kindred to yeah. the story of Christ, which yeah. is what Christianity is based off uh, of. Imagine that. What? what? Yeah. Yeah, so anyway, I, I mean, this is this is something obviously like very deeply impactful for both of us. Yes. Um, I'd encourage you, right, if you, if you haven't heard enough about this, um, Either either find one of us on social media and ask us about it, or yes. Google all of these names we're saying and and find out what they wrote, find out what they said, because that's going to be a lot more helpful information mm-hmm. than even what we can provide. Yep. Um, but but some really incredible things have happened mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. through these people within the church, and a lot of things are continuing to happen that are really exciting. Yep. Um, so yeah, and as one final note, uh, a little bit personally, like yeah, for me, uh, the idea of liberation theology is one of those things that has sort of. A, reinvigorated my perspective on faith and changed it because when you look at Christian history, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of bad, and there's a lot of ugly. Mm -hmm. And so looking within the story of Christianity that you can locate someone like Gutierrez and someone like Romero as even a saint, right? That even, you know, it took 40 years, but eventually the Catholic (laughs) Church recognized Romero as a saint. And that if, if you want to live into a story of faith, for people that have sort of left faith because of so much of the bad and ugly, very Mm -hmm. understandable, I, I get where you're coming from. It makes total sense why you do that. Yeah. Um, but for me, the sort of hope and optimism that I need to live into the story of faith comes from stories and people like Cohn and Gutierrez yeah. um, and many others. And even, I mean, there's even a whole other section of womanist and feminist liberation theology that's great. So like there's a tradition within Christianity that you can lean into that doesn't uh, necessarily support the status quo and is yeah. telling a, yeah. a, 
a story of a better possibility, of a, a possibility of liberation for everyone. Yeah. And that within Christianity, within any faith, you can find the stories of these people that you can identify with. And for me personally, mm-hmm. the only reason that I'm still a Christian is because of people like the people we talked about in this episode. Yeah. Because if I yeah. couldn't be inspired by their work, then there's enough bad and ugly for me to say, I want nothing to do with this. Yeah. Um, it's so, there, right? This is there. there. You just got to look for it. Yep. You just got to look for it and you'll yep. find it. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for sticking around. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll be back next week. Well, now we also, have to be back next week. But. Song recommendation, <laughs> the song Liberated by Dej, Dej Loaf and Leon Bridges. Great Ooh, song. You're going to sing like, it for us now, right? No. You should go listen to it on your own. <laughs> it is like the Liberation Theology Anthem. I love it.